For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order i'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill meat from those organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet you can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A man has been arrested in India for using bombs to hunt pigs. The Times of India reported that officials received a tip that a 60-year-old man named Balasami had been cooking wild boar meat at his home. This is apparently illegal based on the fact that it was enough to warrant a search of the man's house. Sure enough, they found two kilograms of wild boar meat along with three bombs. These bombs are a specific kind of explosive known as a abudakai. This word, which I won't attempt to pronounce again, is usually translated as country-made bombs, which I think is another way of saying they're super sketchy. Not that you can find them at, uh, you know, one of those places with all the junk on the walls that you buy and then there's gravy on everything type of restaurant. It's time to create your country dinner plate. Another Times of India article says these explosives are placed within fruit and then detonated when an animal picks them up in its mouth. They're often used by farmers trying to protect their crops from raiding animals, but they're also used for hunting. Along with wild boars, they've killed bears, elephants, and cattle. Anyway, they tried to question Valusami, but he was reportedly too intoxicated to answer questions. Clever way to get out of a good deposition. Despite this minor roadblock, local police have launched an investigation. Before you American hunters get all high and mighty about our ethical means of take, do a quick Google search for hunting hogs with tannerite. Turns out, we have our own version of country-made bombs in this hemisphere. This week, Washington State updates animal rights and just how Rudolph guides that sleigh. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was highlighted by the long, long overdue morning of hunting with snort. My little baby girl of a yellow lab and I have been separated for over a month, and we desperately needed this. We headed out to a thoroughly pounded block management area not too far from the greater Los Angeles metropolitan zone. 
This particular piece of private land public access is dog hair thick and definitely home to pheasants. All we were after was a good walk to re-cement our communication skills and hunting partnership after far too much time apart. So the knowledge that we weren't going to get anything didn't slow us down. We just needed bird scent so Snort could feel like she's in the game. As I've said before, it's very hard to uh, get this dog riled up if she doesn't smell birds. She slacks off, in other words. Show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. Fortunately, we were into the bird sign right away, and Snort was running just a shade under uh, 2 million miles an hour or so. Well-rested, she was. Now, this particular spot, even if it were opening week, it would be a tough patch of ground for a single hunter to be really effective in. I think you'd get a couple of birds out of it, but it's one of those places where a bird can just run all day. It's also surrounded by no hunting zones, so at this point in the season, the well-educated ditch chickens just walk or fly across the barbed wire at a casual pace if you close your truck door too loudly. We did see two roosters, one about a half mile out executing this exact same plan, and another after a serious sprint uh, about 200 yards in front of us. But that was all right. Snort was really tearing it up. She was wonderful to watch, watching these dogs work scent and focus in on backtracking birds and try to figure them out and divide fresh scent from really fresh scent is just an absolute joy to watch. Something I'll never get sick of. Now, here's a little strategy for you. Sometimes erratically covering a field zigzags, backtracks of your own, will trip up a wise bird. The common strategy for uh, pheasant hunting is to cover a field in a series of straight lines and right angles, always doing your best to maneuver into the wind. But if you break this habit and strike out in a chaos fashion, you can sometimes make your own luck out of a pounded public spot. And we did just that. Our big win of the morning was pinning down two hens, which erupted in a perfectly staggered fashion. One on the left side, one on the right side, perfect for the double triggers of the side-by-side. I tracked both birds as they rose, first in, and then quickly, well, out of shotgun range. Uh, I gave Snort a good scratch, which she tried to avoid at all cost, plus a few good girls, and we headed back to the truck. She's been hiking in my absence, but nothing prepares a dog for hunting, like hunting. That's a quick Snort report for you. They're just going to get better. We're on to waterfowl season. Hope everyone had a truly fantastic holiday, Christmas, or whatever your celebration of choice is. We're moving on to the Washington desk. The Washington State Fish and Wildlife Commission is seeking public comment on a controversial new conservation policy. The document is a high-level description of how the commission will approach conservation in the years ahead. It defines words like conservation and ecosystem and lays out seven guiding principles that will dictate policy moving forward. The first version of the document was released over a year ago, and it's gone through several rounds of revisions. Now, the commission has released what they hope will be the final version of the document, and they're asking Washington State residents to weigh in. If you're familiar with the idea of a Rorschach test, this document is kind of like that. A Rorschach test asks participants to look at random ink blots and find meaning in them. If you're depressed, you'll see a dreary pond. If you're happy, you might see a smiling sun. If you're a serial killer, you'll see a bowl of Captain Crunch. (laughs) Roughly. You you get the idea. Those who support this new conservation policy see nothing nefarious at all. They say it just articulates the principles that have always guided the commission's decisions. 
It affirms their commitment to conserving the state's fish and wildlife and explains that these resources are in the public trust. It dictates that decisions must be based on science, calls for innovative solutions to challenging ecosystem issues, and reiterates their desire to provide sustainable, recreational, and commercial opportunities. Opponents of this policy, on the other hand, wonder why some of the commissioners are so keen on passing it if it doesn't make any significant changes. The Department of Wildlife already has a mission, mandate, strategic plan, and an existing conservation policy. Biologists already work to protect all species, not just game species. So critics say this document just adds fuzzy language that can be used for nefarious purposes. The commissioners who have voiced the strongest criticisms of hunters are the same ones who developed and campaigned for this new policy. Hunters and trappers in Washington state are suspicious of the policy for that reason alone. It also appears to move the state closer towards the wildlife for all position. Wildlife for All is a group we've mentioned on the podcast before. They're seeking to re-engineer wildlife commissions to make them less responsive to the needs and desires of hunters. The first principle of this new policy, for example, reads, quote, The WDFW's top priority in the conservation of Washington fish, shellfish, and wildlife for the benefit of all state residents, current and future. This sounds reasonable, but it also presents the commission with a dilemma. There are those in Washington who oppose all hunting. There are those who engage in wildlife watching who oppose any animal being killed. How does the commission conserve Washington's wildlife for those groups and for hunters? Every state must balance different stakeholders, but it's easy to see how this kind of language could be used to tell hunters to take a hike without, you know, a gun or a purpose. Another portion of the document defines conservation as science-informed actions to perpetuate the health, resilience, and intrinsic value of native species and natural ecosystems. Most hunters would agree that native species have intrinsic value, but this kind of language mirrors anti-hunting organizations, and it's used to justify a call to end all hunting. If elk, like people, have value based on their essential nature, which is the definition of intrinsic, how can we ever justify killing them? I'm not saying that's a good argument, but again, you can imagine anti-hunters seizing on this language to justify a gradual diminishment of hunting rights. Based on the meetings I've watched, the commission is set on passing this, and they have the votes to do it. But there's still a chance they could agree to modify the language. So, if you live in Washington State and you're concerned about anything in this new policy, send them a message. We'll post links at themeateater.com forward slash cal. Moving on to the duck desk. The U.S. Congress just made it easier for waterfowl hunters to get out on the water without running afoul of the law. The Duck Stamp Modernization Act gives hunters the option of purchasing a duck stamp online and then using a digital version of the stamp in the field. Historically, waterfowl hunters were required to have a physical duck stamp on their person at all times. This new bill, which passed overwhelmingly in the House and Senate, will do away with that requirement. As long as you remember to bring your phone from your truck, you'll be good to go. I can hear all the old-timers screaming into their phones, don't worry, the duck stamp isn't going away. The duck stamp is a beautiful tradition and one of the most successful conservation programs of all time. This bill doesn't do away with the physical duck stamp. You'll still be sent a stamp in the mail. You just don't have to wait until it arrives to go hunting or remember to bring it into the field. If you're familiar with the duck stamp program, here's a little history lesson. The duck stamp was conceived in 1934 when Congress passed and President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the Migratory Bird Hunting Stamp Act. The first stamp was designed by J.N. Ding Darling, 
then director of the Bureau of Biological Survey, which was the forerunner to today's Fish and Wildlife Service. Though the stamp started out costing a buck, it's grown to $25. You know it's money well spent. 98% of the purchase price goes directly to help acquire and protect wetland habitat and purchase conservation easements. Overall, $1.1 billion have been raised from sales of federal duck stamps, conserving over 6 million acres of land within the National Wildlife Refuge System. The Duck Stamp Modernization Act passed the U.S. House on a resounding 403-20 to 20 vote, and it passed the Senate by unanimous consent. If you're wondering what kind of legislator voted against making it easier to waterfowl hunt, the answer might surprise you. It's not a list of anti-hunters, at least as far as I'm aware. It's actually a list of 20 Republican representatives that included Arizona Rep Andy Biggs, Florida Rep Matt Gates, and Texas Rep Chip Roy. None of these reps have issued statements explaining their decision, but they are all members of a group in the House called the Freedom Caucus, which vowed to vote against anything sponsored by another legislator who voted for last year's omnibus spending bill. Several of the sponsors of this bill voted for that spending package, so it looks like they're keeping their word. If that's true, they voted against the Duck Stamp Modernization Act, not because it's a bad idea, but just to get back at members of their own party that they don't like. Very adult stuff. I'm reminded of the old quote by President Harry Truman, quote, you want a friend in Washington? Get a dog. A lot of people think that getting life insurance means you're insuring yourself for yourself, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's insuring yourself for your family. So if something happens to me and I'm not around anymore, I can have more peace of mind that my family can have some financial support. And that's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. More than once in my life, my journey, people have described me as an independent person. And that's how I want to stay even when I'm dead. That's how I want to be remembered. That's why I have life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meatfabric.com slash cal. That's meatfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. 
Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the reindeer desk. If all went according to plan last week, Rudolph used his fluorescent nose to help Santa find his way to your house and deliver your presents. Rudolph's job is done for the year, but according to a new study, real-life reindeer are out on the tundra right now using a different kind of superpower. Researchers with the University of St. Andrews and Dartmouth College found that reindeer use night vision to detect food sources during the winter. The surface of reindeer's eyes change color during the year from a golden orange in summer to a rich blue in the winter. They are the only known animal to do this, and it makes their eyes more sensitive to UV light. Biologists have hypothesized that this color change helps them find food. During the winter, reindeer feed primarily on what's known as reindeer moss. Reindeer moss isn't actually moss, it's a type of lichen that grows in sponge-like beds across the northern latitudes where reindeer live. They rely heavily on this lichen during the winter, so it makes sense to assume that they would have adapted to find this lichen more easily. This new study has found exactly that. By changing their eye color to take in more UV light, they're able to see white reindeer moss even in thick blankets of snow, which is amazing! Researchers shined UV light on different kinds of lichen and found that reindeer moss absorbs a large amount of UV. This makes it stand out in the snow, which reflects light rather than absorbs it. At dusk and dawn, reindeer moss stands out black in the snow and makes it much easier to find without burning unnecessary calories. This isn't the perfect explanation, as anyone who spent time in snowy mountains can tell you, making your eyes more sensitive with snow on the ground isn't a great idea. When the sun is high in the sky, a reindeer's highly sensitive eyes might be more of a liability than anything else. The researchers suggest that the antioxidants in the lichen might help protect a reindeer's eyes from damage, but that's as far as they go in explaining the potential downside. Whatever the case may be, I'm seeing potential for a Special Forces-themed Rudolph spinoff movie. He's already got the night vision. All he needs is a Kevlar vest and a rifle. And starring Santa Claus as Detective Crushmore. Are you dumb? Moving on to the animal rights desk. The group behind an effort to ban mountain lion hunting in Colorado has gone back to the drawing board after their first attempt hit a legal roadblock. But the new ballot initiative is almost as bad as the first. Initiative 91 was supposedly aimed at trophy hunting, but it would have banned all hunting of mountain lions, bobcats, and lynx in the state of Colorado. That's partly why the proposal received an unfavorable ruling from the Colorado Title Board, which struck the words, trophy hunting, from the title. The initiative was also being contested in the Colorado Supreme Court, and it was becoming clear that it wouldn't survive that legal challenge. So, the animal rights groups reworded Initiative 91 and resubmitted it as Initiative 101. 
This initiative would ban all mountain lion, bobcat, and lynx hunting between January 1st and December 17th. During those few weeks when hunting would be allowed, hunters would not be allowed to use traps, dogs, bait, or electronic devices. If a hunter somehow succeeded in shooting a mountain lion without any of those tools, he or she would then be prohibited from removing the animal's head, hide, fur, claws, teeth, or internal organs. All of those parts would qualify as, quote, trophies and would have to be turned over to Colorado Parks and Wildlife within 36 hours of the kill. Lion hunters are a tough bunch, and I'm sure some of them would still head out into the woods between December 18 and December 31st. Some of them may even be successful, but Initiative 101 would decimate decades of hunting tradition, put guides out of business, and destroy a traditional means of take for future generations. If Initiative 101 survives legal challenge, tell anyone you know who lives in Colorado to vote it down. Furthermore, it drives me just absolutely batty when people design laws to waste parts of animals. These folks at home who are drawing this stuff up, they better have a heck of a tidy compost bin and be committing very little to their local landfill. Up in Idaho, animal rights groups are pushing the U.S. Forest Service to ban aerial wolf hunting over national forest lands. The petition, filed by the Center for Biological Diversity, takes issue with a recent decision by the Idaho Wolf Depredation Control Board to reimburse ranchers for killing wolves to protect livestock. The control board entered into five predator control agreements, three of which mention aerial control work. The predator control efforts will take place in game management units that overlap with several national forests, including the Boise National Forest and the Sawtooth National Forest. A spokesperson for the Center for Biological Diversity says national forests should be, quote, a refuge for wildlife, not a slaughter zone. The control board says the agreements only cover areas with chronic livestock depredations, but the petition argues that this isn't the case. They claim these areas haven't seen much wolf depredation in recent years, which makes the aerial shooting of wolves recreational hunting rather than a depredation control measure. If that's the case, it would be prohibited under the Federal Airborne Hunting Act. Here in Montana, two different animal rights groups have have filed a lawsuit against a railroad company for failing to do enough to protect grizzly bears. Wild Earth Guardians and the Western Environmental Law Center filed the lawsuit in federal court. They claim the BNSF Railway has been killing grizzly bears without an incidental take permit for decades. The incidental take permits are required under the Endangered Species Act and allow the companies to unintentionally kill a certain number of animals in exchange for policies that are aimed at reducing deaths. Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railways admits that they don't have a permit, but they say they've been trying to obtain one since 2004. They also say they've been instituting policies designed to minimize grizzly deaths as much as possible. They've done things like removing spilled grain and dead livestock and wildlife from the tracks, reducing vegetation that might attract grizzly bears, buying radio collars, bear-proof garbage bins, and electric fencing, and providing educational programs. But activist groups say this isn't enough. In their lawsuit, they say the railroad should require trains to slow down on curves and in narrow areas where grizzly bears may not be able to get away and reduce train traffic at dawn and dusk. The railway counters that slowing down isn't practical because it would create choke points that would slow down the transportation of goods for thousands of miles. They also point out that grizzly bears are hit by trains at all times of the day and night, so reducing traffic at dawn and dusk wouldn't be much help. The railway submitted a plan in June 2020 for reducing the number of grizzly bears killed. It was put out for public comment in January 21, but it still hasn't been approved by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. 
The railroad seeks a seven-year permit, allowing it to kill an average of two and a half grizzly bears per year in exchange for efforts to reduce train strikes. Three bears were killed on railroad tracks in Montana this year. Ironically, the fact that bears are being killed on train tracks indicates that the species is doing well. High densities of animals always result in some of them being killed on roads and train tracks. Conservation efforts are clearly working if we're filing lawsuits based on the number of grizzly bears killed by trains each year. That being said, wildlife overpasses and underpasses are good things. Building more of them, I would be a huge fan of. Uh, I've told this story on the Week in Review a bunch, but, you know, due to my upbringing, I've rubbed shoulders with a bunch of railroaders over the years, quite a few engineers, and these folks do not like hitting animals. It's like a PTSD event, running over large groups of elk or antelope, the occasional bison, black bears, and grizzly bears. A buddy of mine's dad, his first night on the job, whacked a grizzly bear in a tunnel right outside of West Glacier, Montana. Said it looked like an old man in an overcoat standing up on the tracks. And uh, still gets shivers about it talking about it. So protect your employees, BNSF. I think you're doing a good job keeping the tracks clean, but maybe there's a little more you can do. Moving on to the wolf desk. It finally happened. Last week, Colorado Parks and Wildlife released the first five wolves of the state's voter-mandated reintroduction effort. Coloradans approved a ballot initiative in 2020 that mandated wolves be shipped from other states, and now the first shipment is running around on the landscape. The agency hopes to import 10 more wolves by March of this year and another 30 to 50 over the next three to five years. Governor Jared Polis said that history has been made. For the first time since the 40s, the howl of wolves will officially return to western Colorado. He has to use the word officially because um, wolves are already in Colorado. Either that or he's got his head up his rear end. The five wolves included a juvenile male and female from the Five Points Pack, which also happens to be the name of one of my all-time favorite dive bars in the Seattle area, another juvenile male and female from the Norgard Pack, and an adult male from the Wanaha Pack. The wolves were released on public land in Grand County in the northwestern part of the state. As much as I've been skeptical of Colorado's reintroduction effort, it is pretty cool to watch these animals bolt from their crates and run off into the woods. Colorado Parks and Wildlife published photos and video of the entire event. I'd encourage you to watch it. They also published video of the capture work from Oregon, which is also fascinating. But, you know, I, I have some additional questions. Like, where is PETA in all of this? Those wolves were ripped from their only home they ever knew, shipped across the country, and dumped in unfamiliar territory. They don't even know each other. All for the pleasure of humans most of whom live in Denver and will never hear the howl of a wolf. That seems like animal cruelty to me. But, you know, I'm just a hunter, so what do I know? Another thing that I think about here is the fact that in order to do this, Colorado Parks and Wildlife had to agree to recapture these wolves and move them back into the state of Colorado should they cross the border with New Mexico, Arizona, or Utah. At what point do you let wildlife be wildlife? Uh, as we've covered on this show many, many times, wolves walked in from Wyoming, started a pack in Colorado. They had pups there. They're, you know, being kind of jerks on the local uh, ranchers supplier out there. And, you know, a lot of them did get shot in Wyoming. But I have to ask, are we pushing these wolves because of our timeline or are we pushing these wolves because it's what's best for the wolves? It seems to me 
that if you wanted to have a pack of wolves be successful, you would want those wolves to be aware of hunters on the landscape, not suck them out of Oregon and spit them out in the middle of the state. My money's on the Wyoming wolves, not the Oregonians, I guess is what I'm saying. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at meateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. You know, we appreciate it. On top of that, go to www.steeldealers.com to find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're great folks. They're going to get you set up with what you need. They won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.